and welcome back to the Premier Chelsea, your source for all things Premier League, but starting with Chelsea first. Coming into you on your speakers or headsets, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm your host, Rahul, and today I am joined by Ben. How are you doing, Ben? I'm good, Rahul. How are you? I'm doing good. It's good to speak to you. I'm sorry I missed last week, but um, as always, there's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Uh, earlier this week, Chelsea announced changes to their board and leadership. This included departures of Bruce Buck and Marina, uh, Todd Bowley taking over the chairman position and filling in uh, as interim sporting director. So uh, first question I have for you, was this a decision uh, Bruce Buck and Marina made to leave or was this something with the takeover they were always going to be um, you know, moving on and, and pursuing other, op- other things? Well, I think that the Clear Lake Bowley Consortium always saw Todd Bowley as the natural chair. And I was told that even before they actually won the Chelsea bid to acquire the club from Roman Abramovich. So Bowley as chair is a natural fit. And to some extent, you have to play the game of bidding. So if you are up against executives that are looking through various bids, and they're the decision makers, it's not really in your interests at that point to say that Todd Bowley is going to replace one of the key decision makers right. in Bruce Buck. Right. And that was one of the challenges with the Sir Martin Broughton bid that they did have a ready-made chair. And naturally, even though Buck couldn't score or hold that against them officially, it was strongly implied to all the bidders that Bruce Buck wanted to stay on. So I think that his ability to remain as a senior advisor tells you that he wants to maintain that affinity with the football club. But the fact that it is Todd Bowley replacing him as chair is probably evidence of the fact that Bruce Buck was told he was going. And that's the first kind of flex, if you like, of Clear Lake Bowley as a consortium. Marina a little bit different, I think, because the transition period is really important to the new ownership group. And she is hugely admired. And I don't think that Bowley is there wanting to be an interim sporting director. He's very capable of certain aspects of that role. But the reality is that Marina is a seasoned negotiator with an impressive contact book and a huge history of getting Chelsea the targets that they want. And maybe more importantly, in the short term, she is across all of the plans from the old regime for this transfer window. And I've said many times that clubs work many windows ahead. So the fact that she is departing leaves a little bit of a hole in getting business done in this window. The caveat to that is that she's there. And as the statement said, remains available. So what you're going to find really is that Marina will be around to help with anything that Bowley can't do. Buck will be around to assist in any way he can. And then Bowley will be the face. So I don't think that there'll be a gaping hole. I know some fans from the outside in may look at the roles that he's undertaking and say, well, he's doing absolutely everything at the moment. He's the chairman, he's the minority owner, he's got the operational control, he's the interim sporting director, like he's probably going to end up taking training at some point for the men (laughs) and the women's teams to complete a full circle. But it doesn't feel like from talking to sources within the consortium that there's any panic 
that there's any lack of structure. It's simply a case of Bowley wants to assume control and to do that and implement a structure, he has to effectively announce his board of which the plan was always for him to be chair. And then with Marina, because she was always going to consider her future, as soon as it is intimated that she is going to depart, you have to make that decision quickly. Right. Otherwise, there's a danger, and you find this with all sporting directors, that it drags on throughout the window and that uncertainty costs Chelsea players or nobody knows who they're really negotiating with or it doesn't leave enough time to get in a sporting director for the next window and I'll explain why in a moment. Or alternatively, there is the risk with any sporting director, if you let them stay on for too long, when they join a rival, they know too much. And that's not because they're acting underhand. It's just the reality that if, as I've said already, you're working many windows ahead, then the longer Marina stays on actively in her full capacity as sporting director, the more knowledge she'll have about Chelsea's budgets, about players that might leave, about incoming targets. And that can be used as leverage. Not again, because she would be going on her computer and taking things that she's not eligible to take. But if Chelsea are asking her to stay on for a longer period of time, she will simply know more knowledge. And that's why generally, and I am talking now with any sporting director, as soon as you know one is going, you try and get them out as quick as possible. And that was the case with Dan Ashworth leaving Brighton, being put on gardening leave, and then moving to Newcastle United. So then the final thing just to add on that is when I say if they don't get rid of Marina slash she chooses to leave because it was a kind of two-way decision, if they don't make that call quickly, they won't have time to find someone for January. The reason that's the case is because even though January feels like a long way away and recruitment can be done quite quickly in terms of agreeing personal terms, if the sporting director or technical director or both or whatever title they give one person ends up being engaged at another club. They may be put on gardening leave for a long period of time. The club that is losing them may keep them through this window, try and delay negotiations until when the window closes, and then again stick them on gardening leave to impact the January window. So these are all hypotheticals, but the point is the getting a sporting director will be relatively routine, but their start date, depending on who they are and where they are, may be more complicated, which is why I think Chelsea will want to move quickly in order to allocate their top targets. And, and there's a couple of things before I come to the, the sporting director and who those candidates may be. Um, you mentioned that bringing in the new board and bringing in uh, or phasing out the old regime uh, in terms of Bruce and Marina, from the outside looking in, it, it does seem a little um, stressful as a fan because these are names and, and people that have been at the club for a long time and uh, coming into the club are a group that you would say are not fully familiar with football, soccer, whatever you want to call it. So it's kind of good to see that Bruce and Marina may are still going to be in the backgrounds kind of providing um, insights and, and help. Uh, coming to the sporting directors, you you mentioned that January maybe uh, might be the ideal time. So for the foreseeable future, we do expect to see uh, Todd Bowley as uh, the main head in terms of uh, sporting issues and transfers and everything. Who do you think may come in to to replace him, and who are some of the candidates that are 
coming up right now? Well, I think in terms of a timescale, it's impossible to say because it's early stages, of course, prior to announcing the board and Marina, they'll have known of her departure. So it's not like the day that we learned about it. Chelsea then began a recruitment process. They'll have names in mind and the timescale will depend upon whether who they pick is available and quickly with Marina as you say, she's there. I honestly don't think they'll lean on her that much in terms of day-to-day, but she's available in case Bowley has a question or needs a contact or something is pre-existing and so on. But I believe they'll keep her out of it as much as possible for the reasons that I've already right. given. Whereas with Buck, he is actually in an official position as a senior advisor, which means that he can be part of the leadership team and involved in the club's new strategy over the course of the coming months and years. No one name has been determined and nothing has advanced with any possible sporting director. But what's clear is there's a few names in the mix and some of these may well have been put forwards by Marina. So Michael Edwards is the person getting all of the headlines at the moment, a very natural fit. One of the reasons for that is because Chelsea are going to be moving to more of a Liverpool model. And the Clear Lake Bowley group have spoken to FSG at Liverpool to get a kind of understanding. They've got a very cordial relationship. So if they choose to follow Liverpool's model, at least the bits that they know of it, then somebody like an Edwards would be a very natural fit. And the bits they don't know about how Liverpool operate, Edwards would have the opportunity to tell them within reason and confidentiality. And Edwards is obviously outgoing anyway at Liverpool. It's unclear as far as contractual elements as to whether after leaving, leaving, he would have to go some kind of gardening period or potentially there might even be a non-compete aspect to his exit clause all of this is just speculative because the way an outgoing sporting director works is still very secretive but there will be some kind of non-competes or protection around Liverpool's model and who knows it may be that Edwards feels that he's done all of that at Liverpool and doesn't want to do a repeat at Chelsea but it isn't so simplistic as to say that it would be like for like there'll be similarities but they're still two completely different football clubs but Edwards is one name and available if he chooses to take the challenge and at this stage there's conflicting reports out there some are saying that he's open to the role others are saying that he's effectively already intimated a rejection of the role and I say intimated because again nothing has been put on the table in terms of specifics or negotiations or back and forth at this stage so we have to wait and see on Edwards but it's very clear that Chelsea see him as a top top candidate and he is the right fit for the direction that the football club are heading in. Paul Mitchell is another name that could be considered and is admired by Chelsea. And there is some evidence to suggest that he has already been spoken about by the previous regime 
more specifically for a technical director role and increasingly you do see football clubs now appoint a sporting director and a technical director Mitchell is at Monaco he was considered by Chelsea only a few months ago and one of the big selling points is that he's very keen on a move back to the UK but when and how remains to be seen because you'll get two narratives on his availability one is from Monaco, where he's currently at, who will say, well, he's only just joined the board and they certainly see him as being fully functional through this window. And you don't add somebody to the board and you don't agree to be on the board unless you buy into the Monaco strategy. But Monaco are going through a big period of upheaval behind the scenes. And this might be the right time after this window for somebody like Mitchell to move. And regardless of joining the board, he has to be opportunistic and jobs like Chelsea don't come up particularly often. I know he's also been linked with Manchester United. I think that that is less viable. So should an opportunity arise, and it is still an if at this stage, I want to make that clear, I think that he would strongly consider it and would be very open to Chelsea, regardless of the slightly awkward position that he would find himself in of having to surrender his place on the Monaco board. And he's done okay. I think that he's one of those names that is young and gets billed as a transfer guru. And yet it's been hit and miss at Monaco. That's the truth. The early part of his Monaco spell was not great. Glick was allowed to leave for a very small amount of money. The incomings were a little bit underwhelming, but that's natural as you bed in. But what he's proven is that he's able to adapt to a strategy and some upheaval behind the scenes and if you judge who's there now, both incomings and outcomings, he's done much better. And I think that he is a top class, either director of football or technical director. Chuameni got good money at Monaco. Vanderson is a decent young wing back. He brought in Ribeiro, a Portuguese defensive midfielder who's got a decent reputation and could well break into the first team and or give Monaco more Chiuameni style value one day. So young talent allocating maybe some names that others aren't looking at that could become top class stars. And Monaco have got a good history of that all falls into his skill set. And that's why Chelsea have looked at Mitchell for a different role in the past. And it's natural, therefore, given they looked at him quite recently, that he would enter the conversation as well. And then Andrea Berta is the other name. And I think that that would be more of a Marina name than a Clear Lake Bole name in terms of the person that has suggested Berta. Atleti are very clear, not available, working hard for them. But you would expect a club to say that. Any club will tell you that about their sporting director whilst a window is open and they're still in situ. But I think of the three that I've mentioned, Berta is the most likely, even though, again, there's a lot of press at the moment linking Berta to Chelsea. But it's all very early and very speculative at this stage. And unlike the takeover where you get lots of different sources saying things and it's quite a public process, and unlike the transfer window, which is very public with lots of different people opening up about it, the headhunting behind a sporting director and or technical director is really quite secretive. And the club sources and the individuals being recruited are very reticent to confirm too much and the reason for that coyness 
is just because Chelsea don't want to go out there and say we're definitely looking at this person or here's our number one target because then if they don't get that person for any reason it looks like failure and you can fail on a transfer target and say well another suitor came in but you might be the only one chasing after that sporting director and if you don't get them you much prefer to say the person you got is your top target but if you keep telling media for example here's our top target and then you get your number two or your number three then it's not the greatest look because they're so integral to the football club and then from the perspective of the candidates they don't really want to say categorically not to media anyway we'd love that role so they might say they're open but generally they're going to be coy and that is also down to the fact that if Paul Mitchell stands up and says I'd love Chelsea and doesn't get the job or isn't approached or no agreement is reached it puts him in a very awkward position with Monaco and then when there's dialogue between a prospective sporting director and the club it's cat and mouse because Chelsea don't want to say too much to a candidate in case they don't get them and the candidate doesn't want to say too much to Chelsea so if Edwards talks to Chelsea and they ask him about Liverpool there's immediately an element of friction because he doesn't want to give too much away until he's either got the job or understands who the other candidates are or in what direction Chelsea are heading so it's a really intriguing and quite secretive dynamic But that's my understanding of where we are at the moment. And I think that unless Chelsea have got somebody else in mind who's readily available, we're really talking about them coming in for the January window and Marina's experience and Bowley's interim title are going to have to take Chelsea through the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like there's a lot happening behind the scenes. And even with uh, the, the announcements about Bruce Buck and Marina, they came in pretty much at a time where we were all focused on incoming players and maybe outgoing transfers. uh, And then this news broke. So it seems like a lot's happening behind the scenes. One person that I think we haven't spoken about, or at least this week, his name has come up and uh, we're not sure if the rumors are true in terms of him having a talk with Todd Bowley. It's better check. So he's still there. I believe his role is a technical advisor, a technical and performance advisor, uh, for the club and he worked very closely with Marina so I'm sure with her news and her uh, eventually moving on he's probably wondering what goes on with him so do you know or have you heard of anything from your sources about Czech? Well one thing when we're talking about names is that Czech, if he has aspirations to stay at Chelsea could well ask whether he's a candidate for the sporting director I think they'll go for somebody with a little bit more experience but Ultimately, there's continuity between the old regime and the new regime through Czech. So he's set for discussions. And that's really as far as things have progressed. And we don't know at this point whether those discussions will be simply about whether he wants to stay or go or whether there's a pathway for him to effectively step up and fill that kind of marina shaped hole. I would be surprised personally, but that is only my opinion. And the good news, I suppose, from Czech's perspective, if he wants to stay at Chelsea, is that as an ex-player gone into the business of sport, he's worked under Marina, but is not as tied to the old regime. He's got his own affinity with Chelsea. So a lot will just depend, I think, on who first and foremost is allocated as the sporting director, because then they may have their own name that they want to bring into 
Pedacek's role. So that is an intriguing dynamic because you've got number one, does Czech want to stay? Number two, do the new ownership group want to keep him? Number three, if they want to keep him, in what capacity do they want to keep him in? The same position or potentially a candidate for sporting director? And then does Czech feel capable of making that step up? And naturally, the safest way of Czech, if he wants to stay at the football club, of being able to do so is by putting himself in the mix for sporting director. Because as I said before, if he stays in his current position and a new name comes in, then that name will probably have a say over his future. But it's too early to be making predictions on Czech's future. All we know is that he'll talk to the new ownership group. And also in the short term, they obviously don't want to lose anybody else if they possibly can. Not that they've technically lost Marina if they need to pick up a phone and Bruce Buck's still at the football club. But the last thing they'll want to do at such a key stage now in the transfer window, when we hit this sort of gap between it being open and teams returning and a certain kind of player that is either a simpler transfer or a more advanced transfer, wanting to perhaps get it done so they can turn up for day one of pre-season. It's vital that Chelsea have that stability and continuity of people that know about existing deals from the old regime and are also experts. So if Bowley needs to lean on someone, he can pick up the phone. So then when you look at, let's say, Pedder and Scott, the chief scout as well, Scott McLaughlin, you have a scenario where whether they stay or go, the last thing from Clear Lake Bowley's perspective they'll want is them to go now. Otherwise, you've lost check, you've lost your chief scout, you've lost your director of football, you've lost your chair, you've lost your CEO. Now, I'm not saying they've not replaced them with names, and I'm not saying that each of the people that have departed won't still have a transitional period, a handover and play a part, but on paper, you've lost them by position. Mar- Marina on paper has been terminated even if she quote remains available so there's that factor as well the last thing they want to do is have too many outgoings which is why I think now you'll just have a quiet period of stability where everyone pitches in to get through this window and then as and when a sporting director is appointed should that sporting director not be Peter Cech and he doesn't put himself forwards as a candidate, uh, at that point, his future will be fully determined. And if in the meantime, he just feels he's the wrong fit from his discussions with Bowley, then he could decide to depart, or both parties could agree that it is mutually the right decision. But I think it's not the priority at the moment. The priority is just to keep as much stability behind the scenes from the old regime within reason as Clear Lake Bowley can, so they can get on with the more important and urgent business of getting the players they want before either other clubs swoop or in the slightly longer term the window closes. Yeah, and I think from a fan perspective, that would be what we would prefer to is is getting in the players and and getting uh, the team ready for the next season because we did end third in in the Premier League like we've spoken about in the past. And I think our aspirations, at least from the fan perspective, again, is to to, uh, go up higher in the table. Uh, One name I want to bring up, Ben, before we, we move on to more of the transfer stuff is uh, back when the whole ownership issue uh, was going on and the takeover issue was going on, John Terry and his consortium had had come up with the news that they would be interested in buying a 10% stake, if I'm right. Any update on that? Really haven't heard much more on it. Um, again, you may say that that's not one of the priorities right now, more focus on the pitch and, and on the players, but just wanted to bring that up in, in terms of if you've heard anything. No real intel on that 
it was widely reported at the time what Terry's aspiration was. And I do know that Clear Lake Bole will engage with both fan groups and ex-players as well. But there's certainly no talks at the moment in terms of either offering a stake or a golden share to the fan base. Those kind of things could be priorities. I, I doubt any kind of negotiation, by the way, with Terry will happen. That's my personal opinion. But was Terry to return to the table and ask for dialogue over that? He'll get his answer further down the line. There's been no intimation to me throughout this process that Terry is a part of anything. And therefore, if he is to come to Chelsea and ask for some kind of business interest in the club or enhanced ambassadorial role, then that is a discussion that hasn't yet taken place. And it's exactly the same with the fan base, that it doesn't appear that there will be a formal golden share at this stage. Otherwise, you would have thought they would have announced it alongside the board or at least implied that that conversation would take place at a later date. But I don't claim to have the ins and outs and insight and knowledge on these particular issues. The golden share was discussed and considered by all of the major bidders, including the Ricketts family who pulled out. And if anything, it was most urgent for them to do it at that point because they hadn't won over the fan base. What I do know, though, is regardless of what it's called in terms of the role of an ex-pro or the fan base, Bowley and the group at large plan to engage with the fan base. So when they have redevelopment plans that they can present, if they have any ideas around things like heritage, when they choose to do things using ex-pros and Chelsea legends, all of that will have consultation. It may be a formal consultation, it may not. I definitely don't want to create a headline where I say there will or won't be a golden share because that is not something at this stage that I have insight or knowledge on. Sources have not spoken about that in any great capacity. But what I do know is away from that, whenever there is the need or desire to use an ex-pro or to ask the fan base a question on protecting Chelsea's heritage or running something by them where the fan voice is key, the group will do that. And that's the stark contrast between them and Abramovich, who didn't engage with fan groups, who wasn't transparent, who wasn't visible, who wasn't proactive. And Bowley and his team, and I include Jonathan Goldstein in that, who will have a big day-to-day -day presence as well, will be the exact opposite. And that's why I think that fans will enjoy this ownership group. That They will, whether rightly or wrongly, judge them on the windows and the transfers and the on-field success for the men and the women's team. But if you put that aside, even though that is the gauge through which fans basically make up their mind about an ownership group what are you going to spend who you're going to bring in that's just football unfortunately but if you put that to one side and we start thinking more about the sustainability of the football club the stuff that isn't sexy the redevelopment is kind of sexy i guess but <laughs> the stuff that is longer term or strategic or brand focused when they get to that point and they have a plan then the fan base i believe anyway in some capacity will be involved and and that's I think that's fair. I, I, I just wanted to bring it up because I had pledged a, a small amount to this consortium in terms of being interested as being one of the, uh, I guess, one of the stakeholders. But uh, let's move on to more of the, the sexy stuff, like you said. Uh, and today I'd like to start 
a uh, little bit away from Chelsea, we'll start in North London. Uh, been looking at what some of the other teams have been doing, and, and you may know what more is to come. So we'll start with Tottenham. Three players in already. Uh, Perisic and Foster on a free, and then, in my opinion, an absolute steal for Basuma from Brighton. Uh, I know Conte, for the longest time, spoke about bringing in players. Uh, is he targeting or Spurs targeting more players? And then eventually, will there be players that leave from the club? Yeah, Tottenham are absolutely going to have a very strong window, I think. And they're targeting a number of different players. They've called their interest on Gabriel Jesus, which actually is code for the fact that Arsenal are front runners and that deal is highly likely. And clubs always tell you that, that they've called or they've backed off rather than they've, quote, failed. It's a little right. bit harsh on Spurs and Chelsea as well to say failed. It's just that the player is in very advanced talks now with Arsenal and that deal is highly, highly likely to happen. So naturally, Spurs get wind of that and they turn their attention to other players. I think that Rickarlison is their priority from an attacking sense. And it will be really interesting to see how they sell him that football club. He's keen on a move to London, which is bad news for Newcastle, who are unlikely to get Hugo Ekatike without problems. I should clarify <laughs> that that deal is hanging in the balance because they've agreed a fee already. It's just the agent is kind of negotiating to the point of gridlock. So a lot depends on whether Newcastle cave or walk away, or of course the agent backs down and then the original deal gets over the line. So that's quite intriguing. And I think that if things continue in this manner and with Newcastle wanting to strengthen, they would look at backups and Rickarlison is a name that they've considered, but it looks like he's considering a London move. And it's logical to say that if Arsenal get Gabriel Jesus and are in for Rafinha, they won't go for Rickarlison, which could leave a straight shootout between Chelsea and Tottenham as far as the London clubs are concerned, plus Newcastle's interest. But I don't think he'll pick Newcastle. And then with Tottenham and Chelsea, the difference is going to effectively be who pitches his place in the team. And that's where Chelsea could have an advantage because Lukaku is gone and Rickarlison could be a real focal point Whereas at Tottenham, you've still got Kane and Son. So where does he fit in? And I think that Tottenham still feel that they are going to prioritise that. Whereas maybe Chelsea, even if they need two attackers, are still of that Sterling plus someone. And the plus someone could be Ricarlison, but it could be Dembele and it could be Rafinha. Or it could be a surprise that we don't yet know about. And we're still so early in the window that that's highly, highly likely. So Tottenham are probably, in my opinion, going to prioritise Rickarlison. And I think that that would be a great signing for the club. It's just, as I say, whether it's going to be a great signing for Rickarlison personally in terms of his game time. And then Tottenham are looking at Rafinha as well. And Jawa Felix has been linked as well, although I don't think that there's anything particularly advanced at this stage. And given what Atleti paid for Jawa Felix and how highly he's rated, they would need a lot of money in order to get that deal over the line. But I think that's where they stand. And it was obvious Tottenham were always going to spend early and big. Perisic is a good signing. And I just think as soon as we knew they'd qualified for Champions League and then Daniel Levy had put sort of a big chunk of money into the club, most of which was going to go on to transfers. 
it was logical that they were going to take a big swing early in the window and they've done good business so far and I do think that they'll bring in a couple more additions the only thing to add on Spurs is that I don't believe that Christian Eriksen will be one of those signings Eriksen might want to make the move there's sentiment there it's perfect for Eriksen on paper but at the time of recording Tottenham have still not made an offer yeah it's 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 been a good window like you said for for Spurs and um, that Richarlison piece that you mentioned, it's, it's always tough to go in as a striker into a club that already has a main man and Harry Kane, you know, is going to be starting 99% of the game. So Richarlison uh, ho- hopefully looks towards West London versus North London. Uh, sticking in North London, you mentioned Arsenal. We've spoken about uh, them signing or looking into Jesus, but Rafinha is a name that comes up and I think they have a long-standing interest in Tillemans from Arsenal. Uh, having already signed Fabio Vieira and a youngster Marquinhos from Brazil, uh, do you think Jesus most likely is going to be the next uh, person player that comes in the door? Yeah, Jesus, as I've already said, highly likely. Yep. Arsenal think they've won that race and he would be a fantastic signing, maybe one of the signings of the window. And that's saying something. I know that people listening will say, wait a minute, Nunez, Haaland. Right. When I judge a signing, I don't just look at the reputation and what they've done and the pedigree. I look at the money paid and the impact. And that's the difference that Man City are already Premier League winners. Haaland might turn them into Champions League winners, but he could have a good individual season. Manchester City could finish second and not win the Premier League. Liverpool have lost Mane. Nunes is a phenomenal talent, but... It's exactly the same. With Nunez, are Liverpool going to contend for a quadruple again? They might, they might not. So what that tells you is that both those clubs have got world-class players. And with respect to Jesus, they are better players than him. But I'm looking at how much the player goes for and what the player does. And that's why a Sterling and a Jesus could actually have a bigger impact at better value. Because if you gave Arsenal last season Jesus, where would they be? And I would argue ahead of Tottenham and at worst in fourth place. And if you got 15 goals, potentially a heck of a lot close to Chelsea. So Arsenal are just in a position where they need a focal point in their attack who's going to get them at least 15 goals. And Jesus is the type of player that can not only do that, but at pretty good value due to the fact that Manchester City wants to offload him. Originally, the fee for Jesus was up in the sort of mid-50s. The base fee has been verbally agreed, as far as my sources tell me, but there's still some negotiations to be done around the finesse of the deal. And usually that means add-ons, And then the player negotiation is pretty much getting there as well. And I would expect that deal to move within the next seven to 10 days from a verbal agreement around a base fee to a final agreement. And I don't think there's any other suitor now that's going to come in and take Gabriel Jesus. And there's no real reason why Manchester City will play particularly hard ball because it's in their interest to sell him. Manchester City sources have always told me that they want around 90 million base fee for Jesus um, and Sterling combined. And then it's what add-ons could, you know, get them to 100 million plus 
and what clubs are prepared to pay and you have to factor in things like wage bills and so on so there's still sort of the ironing out of that deal to be done but it is getting very advanced and very close so watch this space on jesus tielemans is the opposite it was in exactly the same kind of place as uh, jesus other than the fact that there was no verbal fee or agreement with leicester city but uh, because it's clear tielemans doesn't want to sign a new deal at leicester the ballpark is obvious and also quite bargainy for want of a better word so arsenal would have liked to pay kind of 25 million maybe with a few add-ons but some sources have told me all in and leicester are looking for kind of 30 to 33 and still maybe some add-ons on top so a little bit of compromise will be needed if they get to the point of negotiation but arsenal have never tabled an offer for telemans but what they have done is worked for the best part of a year to get an agreement with a player knowing the ballpark and this is sometimes how it works in the transfer window that the fee and the formal offer comes last and the reason for that is because if you've got a player whose contract is expiring and you know they want to join and you've already agreed terms then when you then go in this case to leicester city leicester have lost all their leverage because it's like yikes the legwork's been done the player wants to leave time is ticking away leicester would probably prefer a fee and the reason by the way leicester are asking for a little bit higher is just because in an ideal world they want to break even for right. the fee that they paid for um Tielemans when he joined them from Monaco which I, I think is in the early 30s I believe it's 32 million off the top of my head so that will be part of the process but Arsenal have brought in Vieira they're prioritizing Jesus at the moment so I would classify that situation as backed off but there is room for Vieira and Tielemans at Arsenal and there is still a very good chance that that deal ends up happening a little later in the window but it, it's not as imminent or as prioritized by Edu and Arteta as it was a few weeks ago due to Vieira's arrival and all attentions at Arsenal at the moment are to get Jesus over the line. And that's fair. Tielmans is, is a brilliant player. I'm sure you, you, you've watched him firsthand and, and share that sentiment. Uh, maybe one that we may look into, we being Chelsea. Uh, I want to go to Manchester United. They, they've had a lot of people, a lot of players leaving. Uh, Ten Hag's come in. We've heard Frankie de Jong may be happening, may not happen. Uh, Christian Eriksen, we heard, may have rejected a move to to United. Uh, is there more you can add to this? And and they seem to be a little slow, if you ask their fans, in terms of the business, uh, in terms of incoming. So anything for you to add there? I don't think it's fair necessarily to call them slow because they're like Chelsea in a period of change. The disappointing thing for Manchester United is the whole point of Ralph Rangnick was to put things in place so Eric Ten Hag could hit the ground running and then Rangnick goes off to Austria and Ten Hag solo and it's still unclear what Rangnick has left for Ten Hag in terms of targets and so on. So Manchester United are looking at a number of players Frankie de Jong is one of them he says he's happy at Barcelona but Barcelona need to clear some space in their squad and their wage bill and bring in some finances because there's a long queue of players like Rafinha and Robert Lewandowski with Lewandowski almost certain in my opinion 
to join Barcelona because he's always said that he wants that move. And it's just a case of Bayern playing hardball and trying to get as much as they can out of that deal. But by the end of the window, Lewandowski will be a Barcelona player. He's not looking at Chelsea or other clubs. And when he's linked with another club, it's really just out of either agents putting other names out there as backups or leverage in case Barcelona somehow go bust but these are eventualities that just won't happen because for all of the ridiculousness of Barcelona being able to keep spending and bringing in players and even sign players that they can't register and supposedly line up Aspilicueta and Alonso and so on there's a whole queue of players waiting to come into Barcelona for all of that eventually they find a way to get it done and that will be exactly the case with Lewandowski as well but with De Jong, I think that Manchester United need to submit an improved bid. And until they do that, there won't be any further progress. But De Jong is very much open to working under Ten Hag, perhaps more sold by Ten Hag than Manchester United right. specifically as a football club. And the same applies to Anthony as well. And that's the beauty of Ten Hag. He's already pulling his sway in terms of players that he personally can bring to Manchester United. And it's really strange to say that as someone that grew up watching Manchester United under Sir Alex Ferguson, because this was a football club that sold itself, not just Ferguson, but the culture, the dressing room, the winning mentality around the kind of late 90s, you know, up until really the last three or four years, at least when Alex Ferguson was there. And now it's the complete opposite. It's a football club that is unsettled, hasn't been as decisive, hasn't generated a connection really between the ownership group and the fan base, other than the, the fan base constantly protest against them. And it just needs upheaval, structural upheaval, as well as player upheaval. And if you keep doing the player upheaval or the managerial upheaval first and you don't change your foundations, you're going to repeat the same mistakes over and over and over again, which is why, once again, Chelsea's new ownership group want to try and make foundational change in order to get long-term success on the field. So Manchester United have got a whole array of players that they're linked with, but first and foremost, they need stability. And I do think that De Jong would be an excellent signing, and Anthony as well. But you have to be wary with any Manchester United link at the moment, simply because they are going for top, top names and they don't have Champions League football and other suitors can easily hijack. And Darwin Nunez is a great example yeah. of that, that United went out there first to try and get him. They thought that they were pretty close. They believed they could convince the player. And then Liverpool from... April onwards, even though sometimes it gets billed as only the last few weeks, but it was April onwards in reality, enter those talks. They go under the radar, which is what Liverpool do brilliantly uh, with a lot of their signings. And it actually turns out that all along the player wanted to join Liverpool, not just Liverpool Football Club, but the club, the history, the heritage, the manager and Champions League football. And that's the difference that Liverpool and Manchester United at the moment are poles apart. So when you have a like for like head to head, 
most players are going to pick Liverpool unless somehow Ten Hag has either worked with them, which is the case with some of these targets, or can intervene and sell them the long-term vision, which comes back to what I said before, that if there is no long-term vision, if there is no long-term stability, if there is no long-term plan, if there's constant managerial change, senior executive change, ownership not being transparent and open with how they plan on operating, dressing room fractures and so on, then the long and short of it is that no player, no sane player anyway, is going to pick a Manchester United over Liverpool. And that is the challenge at the moment. And I know that sounds really harsh against Manchester United, but the only way the football club is going to get back to its best, and I would love to see them back at their best, the only way they're going to get there is if they accept the cold, hard reality of just how low they've fallen at the moment. Yeah, and and you just got to look, you mentioned Liverpool, you just got to look at them a few years ago. They were kind of in a position, maybe not as low as Manchester United, but they were uh, always kind of the fighting for top four or Europa League, and they finally are now one of the household or, or names that you always pick for the top of the table. I'm going to go to Newcastle before we come back to Chelsea and wrap it up. Uh, Newcastle have just, or in the last day or so, announced Nick Pope, which is a brilliant signing for them. Uh, do you expect more business from them? And, and they're making some smart signings with Matt Target already uh, turned into a permanent transfer and now Nick Pope. And they seem to be buying players that know what and how to negotiate in, in the Premier League. I mean, it's funny because everyone thought that Newcastle would sign uh, Neymar or right. <laughs> And they're certainly interested in Ericsson, not that he quite falls into the same category as those two players, but, you know, established global names, all three of them, and big money wages, certainly in the case of Neymar and Bale anyway. And actually, they've got two players from Burnley and Chris Wood and <laughs> Nick Pope and... As you say, Target, very sensible signing, had a good back end of the season. Trippier, who's fully back from injury now, really good marquee name. Dan Byrne, another excellent, solid, sensible player, big personality, good in both boxes. And all of this just adds depth. But Newcastle are also signing players with personalities. So there's a real unity about the whole football club and there's a connection between the dressing room and then the dressing room and the owners and then the ownership and the fan base. And when Newcastle United are singing off the same hymn sheet, St. James's Park becomes a fortress. And we saw that in the back end of last season, which means you only need to add mediocre away form and you're already guaranteed a top half finish and anything better. And you start pushing for Europe. So I really like the attacking mentality of how I'm really excited on the field to see where Newcastle progress. There's the whole backdrop of the ownership group and the fact that PIF still need to be transparent and talk to the media. And there'll be certain times, especially if Newcastle go to Saudi Arabia repeatedly, and they've already been once where they do have to answer some difficult questions. And that's quite right. And rather than fobbing them off, it's far better that Newcastle, how in particular, but Yasser Al-Rumi and their chairman should speak because he's the voice and he's the most informed. But whoever talks 
should inform themselves because that way, rather than just getting difficult questions and fobbing them off and coming under criticism, there may be counterpoints or they can at least give insight as to what Saudi Arabia is like from their perspective or from a sports perspective. People will still disagree. People will still criticize. Newcastle are the kind of enemy on the fields to the big six and Todd Bowley has already said that it's a big seven already and let's see how quickly Newcastle can challenge but putting all of that aside on the field Eddie Howe has made some smart signings has a good attack-minded mentality and I do expect Newcastle to bring in a number of other players they still need a defender a centre-back and Sven Botman is the now lengthy target that they've been chasing and it just looks like there is an issue over the fee that is going to be paid and I think that the kind of challenge over that fee is not so much that Newcastle haven't agreed terms because they have but just that you have AC Milan who have come into the mix and they can't afford the same fee as Newcastle. So that's the issue when I'm talking about fee, just in case Newcastle fans are listening. I'm not talking about Newcastle's negotiation, but AC Milan have struggled to agree a fee. And therefore, you have a situation where Botman may want to join Milan over Newcastle, but you hear different things from different sources. But Newcastle are the only club that are actually able to agree a deal at the moment. So it's a wait and see whether Milan can somehow get something on the table and then Botman has a straight decision to make. And if not, he has to choose to either stay or go to Newcastle United. And we don't really know how that saga is going to end, but Newcastle are getting frustrated and so is the fan base. So they might have to look at another central defender but they'll definitely bring in a defender I don't really think they need a midfielder anymore because Bruno's been a phenomenal signing and Joe Linton is on fire so they don't necessarily need a central midfielder but they obviously also need a striker and Hugo Ekatike is the other name and I already spoke a bit about him before um, this one has come to a gridlock as well much to the frustration of Newcastle there is still dialogue they again have agreed a deal in terms of um, with the club um, but uh, the agent is asking for all kinds of extras and Newcastle are not prepared to pay them. And, you know, Newcastle need to set a precedent where they don't cave to these things. Otherwise, with the financial power that they've got, every agent's just going to try and try their luck. And uh, that's something that Newcastle are going to have to be wary of. Uh, this is new territory for Newcastle in, in many ways. And um, having been a club that's challenged for the Premier League, but in an era where fees weren't so big and now being um, full of wealth, they're going to find that everyone tries their luck. Everyone raises the price. Everyone leverages Newcastle to try and get more from another club. So it's actually very smart that the football club is sticking to their guns and doing sensible business because it sends a message that says, hey, don't judge us by our finances on paper, judge us by how we negotiate. And, you know, we're going to make sure that every penny is accounted for and we do smart business. So you as the seller or you as the agent don't repeatedly try your luck. And um, that's just my perspective. I have no sources saying that's exactly what Newcastle are doing, but from the outside in, it very much strikes me that that's their tactic. And all we've seen so far from Newcastle is smart, sensible business. Probably the only overpaying that they did was the actual fee for Chris Wood by a few million, but uh, they had to because they urgently needed depth 
and quality and goals in his case. Not that he actually scored that many, but they didn't know that when they signed him, but they needed something, options to get them out of a relegation battle. Uh, now uh, they've got a bit more control and they can take their time with transfers. And I think that you'll see Newcastle actually, especially with Dan Ashworth as well in the mix, be very shrewd negotiators. And um, even though everyone assumes they're going to spend millions and millions and millions on everyone, I, I think they'll continue to surprise us with how uh, smart and economical their business is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I know a couple of Newcastle uh, fans and they're pretty pleased with the way things are going. I know everyone gets hyped up when, when the takeover happened and all these names are being thrown around. But like you said, it's smart business and it's business that will serve them well uh, in the long term. But coming back to, to Chelsea and, and before we wrap it up, uh, we've spoken about a number of transfers coming in, leaving. There's a few contract renewals that I want to touch on before, before we wrap it up. Uh, Mason Mount and I think Reese James were seen as the Bowley group as, as two players that they would like to give new deals to. And then there's two players that are running out or, or contracts will be running out next year, which is Angola Conte and Jorginho. So my question for you is, is that also still on the table in terms of contract renewals or is now more focused on, on bringing in players and letting players go in terms of that want to move on? And then maybe once the season starts, these contract renewals or contract extensions will be, will be handed out. Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, you can expect the new ownership group to come in and have an absolute strategy and an approach on everything. They can't simultaneously renew contracts, negotiate contracts, right get Lukaku out, work out Alonso and Aspilicueta, bring in four or five names, recruit a CEO, recruit a sporting director, <laughs> all within less than a month at the moment. So there obviously has to be priorities. Uh, what I know with Mount and James is they're two players they definitely want to keep and they will make offering improved terms to both a priority. So that's as far as that's got and we'll see on their list of things to do when that materializes, but it's very much on their radar. Kante and Jorginho are more interesting because I think there's a feeling that one or both do need replacing now. So the future of one or both could depend on who Chelsea are able to bring in. And if they find a ready-made replacement in midfield, which is why I'm surprised, for example, that Tielemans isn't right. someone that Chelsea are, are reaching out to. But I've said this on many podcasts, there's nothing between Chelsea and Tielemans at the moment. So I certainly don't want to start a headline, but I'm just using <laughs> him as an example. But Amadou Diawara um, is somebody that has been on Chelsea's radar. Hadar is a good player in a more disciplined defensive midfield role. So there's options out there potentially, but it depends what Chelsea want. And I, I think that if somebody was to come in, and it is an if, at that point, it might prompt Jorginho and or Kante to go. Kante will be in demand. And whether he's past his peak or not, uh, he's a brilliant player. And I, I think that he has a role to play because he's humble and he's team orientated and he's loved around the dressing room. He, he's got this kind of quiet confidence um, and he will not be against, in my opinion, because he's very settled doing whatever job is asked of him. And that's just the kind of person and player on the field that he is. So he's an asset to Chelsea, whether he's past his peak or not, in my opinion. Um, and a lot may just depend on whether or not 
he fancies a return home or wants to stay in London, but he very much sees London as home uh, as well. So I, I don't think unless somebody comes in for him, um, I'd love him back at Leicester, by the way, <laughs> there'll be too much on Kante imminently. Uh, Jorginho is more interesting um, because Chelsea might want to try and get a transfer fee for him and um, the fee for delete is being quoted as so high and that's because the release clause is so high so if Chelsea want delete and he's definitely on their defensive shortlist they may not want to or be able to pay the kind of fee being quoted which could be as high as sort of a hundred odd million uh, euros if the release clause is met but if you've got Jorginho and Juventus have an interest in him, there might be a way of offsetting that and keeping the financials in check. So that's one to watch. But um, all of this is at very, very early stages. And um, therefore, um, there needs to be more consultation um, between Boley and Tuchel on Kante and Jorginho. And for their future to be defined in this window, offers will actually have to come in as well. So um, I wouldn't say at this point, because nobody is coming in that position, they're either a surplus to requirements. So I just think that as the season progresses, if they stay, both will be well aware that they'll have um, increasingly bit part roles. Yeah, it's like you said, there's so many moving parts. And uh, I tried to steer clear of some of the names we've already spoken about in the last two weeks, because um, I'm sure situations and, and the way things are going, things haven't moved along too far. Uh, but Delete is one of the names that we hadn't spoken about, so I'm glad you brought it up. And Richarlison was another one uh, that we hadn't spoken about, so I'm glad we got to talk about that too. Uh, final question on on Tuchel and, and his role and his involvement in uh, working with Boley as, as we transition and move forward. Um, we're hearing he's heavily involved. It's more about what he wants this time around versus what the club or what um, the board previously had wanted. Is that really what's going on? And, and if eventually when players do start coming in, uh, would they be the ones that maybe Tuchel had identified earlier uh, in the season or earlier this year? We know that Thomas Tuchel has spoken directly to Todd Bowley now on a number of occasions, and he's made his position clear in terms of where he wants to strengthen and who some of his targets are. So absolutely, Tuchel and Emma Hayes will have a huge say. And that's logical in the same way that Jurgen Klopp has a big say on transfers at Liverpool. But he won't be given, in my opinion, so much autonomy that Chelsea repeat mistakes of the past where Roman Abramovich pandered at times to certain managers. Obviously, Abramovich and Marina called the shots, but there was still a pandering at times to certain managers. And then you get a player that fits a certain manager or a set style and then becomes surplus to requirements and Chelsea's new owners won't want to make that mistake. So Thomas Tuchel will be listened to. They want to make an impact in this window and he's best positioned, especially with all of the outgoings behind the scenes, to have his say. And it'll be the same with Emma Hayes. And let's not forget that Chelsea women have already brought in Eva Perisic, who's a tremendous 
signing and Kadesha Buchanan as well. And I expect them to be very busy in the transfer market as well. And, you know, Chelsea women are the complete package as well. They've got depth all over the place. They've got great world-class players. They may not need as many, um, but G is gone. And I think there's four outgoings from the senior staff, the real core of last season. So they'll probably need to strengthen as well. So both managers are going to have say, but it's not as simple as perhaps fans think that just because an owner says to a manager, you've got say, or a manager says to an owner, I want say, it doesn't then mean that there becomes a shopping list and then off Bowley gets and tries to buy them. There's an element of truth in that in terms of priorities, but Bowley will make it clear to Thomas Tuchel what the budget is. And there'll still be certain signings that are dictated by outgoings, which is why Chelsea have to focus on the defensive priorities. I'm sure if Tuchel got his 100% way before the ownership group came in, Rudiger would still be there, Aspilicueta might stay, and then Chelsea would have the opportunity to say, well, hey, we don't need to focus our time and energy on defenders. There's still that balance of like what you want versus what you need, need. what you can afford versus... Um, who is available that you can't. And Dembele is a great example of that. So if Thomas Tuchel says to Todd Bole, uh, I want Dembele and he's available on free, of course, Bole will explore that for him along with the wider team. And Tuchel will be involved um, more so perhaps than before um, in trying to lure the player over. And, And that's what Klopp does well. He doesn't just say what he wants. He's actually part of the sales pitch Uh, And Thomas Tuchel uh, with Dembele has a good opportunity to do exactly the same. Uh, But then if the wages are just too high, the wages are just too high. And uh, there might be some compromise from the football club. If Tuchel then says, I I desperately want him, what can we do? But Chelsea are not going to set bad precedents of just matching anything Dembele wants just to get him through the door. And that's where... Um, the owner may have to go back to the manager and say, sorry, I know you wanted that target, but we're not going to put in an offer. Who's your next target? So um, there's a bit more finesse to it than just thinking Tuchel's got more control. He'll name who he wants and Bowley will go out and get him. If he doesn't get it, it's failure. That's not really how a window works. Uh, Sometimes the owner will reassume control and sometimes the manager will put his foot down and um, say, it's this player um, otherwise, I'm going to be really disappointed. And uh, Koulibaly is a good example of that at Napoli, where um, everyone thinks Koulibaly is available, but Spalletti has effectively said, I wouldn't normally do this, um, but for this guy, I'm putting my foot down. And if he goes, then I will see that as a failure. And I might either consider my position at the football club or I'm going to feel let down by uh, the recruitment strategy of incoming and outgoing. So, you know, it's a bit glib to say that Tuca will always have the control or that Bowley will always have the final say. But what's clear is that they're a double act and more so of a double act now than when Tuchel was working under Abramovich slash Marina. No, and I think that's that's a great point to make. And I think a good point where we, we end this episode is I think everyone's getting a little carried away with Tuchel's involvement, but I think you've outlined it very well in terms of Uh, what his role is and what it may not be and what it may be so um, that wraps it up guys thank you for tuning in please continue to subscribe like and follow us at the premier chels and all the leading podcast providers and youtube and please also leave us a review on apple so we can connect with other fans and we will be back next week but until then stay safe and up the chels
Hey guys, the Premier Chelsea is sponsored by Kickoff Coffee. They are a top quality artisanal roasted coffee. In other words, they're Champions League winner and Premier League winner every single time. They deliver fresh bags directly to your home so you don't have to go to a coffee shop and pick up something. And the best part about them is every bag gives back to soccer charities. 10% of the proceeds go to organizations that use soccer to promote youth social development in the underserved areas. Use our code TPCOFFEE15 to get 15% off your order. You can order at kickoffcoffeeco.com or check out the links on our social media. Thanks.